You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's go to 1 John. It's going to be tucked away in the back of your New Testament, 1 John. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one this morning. When you came into the worship room, you should have seen on those tables in the back stacks of black Bibles. Take one now. Take one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. We'd love to give you a Bible. Start reading it and just see what happens in your life. And if you don't know the way, your way around the Bible very well, no worries. We're going to put all the verses that we'll be studying together on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand each week during this time out of reverence for the Word of God. We truly believe that this is God's Word and that it's profitable for us. So listen carefully to 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10. to 10. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Is newer always better? Is innovation always improvement? Consider the rise of the hoverboard. In the 1989 cult classic Back to the Future Part 2, Marty McFly rockets through the air on his hoverboard, planting a dream in the minds of skateboarders everywhere. Someday, someday I won't need wheels. Someday I'll ride a hoverboard just like Marty. If you've seen the film, you know that The hoverboard scene is set in the year 2015, which explains the mad rush to release real hoverboards six or seven years ago. According to an article in Wired magazine written in June of 2015, the futuristic device first went by the name Two Wheels Smart Self-Balancing Scooters Drifting Board Electric. Pithy. Around the time this article was written, you could get a self-balancing scooter made by Funky Duck, Oxboard, Futurefoot, and many other companies. And depending on the specific model that you bought, a hoverboard would cost you somewhere between $600 and $1,800. And even at this price, Americans were shouting, Great Scott! Holding on to our flux capacitors and jumping on those scooters expecting the ride of a lifetime. But before we could say 88 miles per hour, the excitement was replaced with fright. Numerous sources began telling us of injuries sustained while riding these state-of-the-art boards. 
I love the way one USA Today article from 2016 puts it, quote, The self-balancing, battery-driven scooters have a disconcerting tendency to burst into flames. (laughs) Disconcerting indeed. Try this board. It might be the ride of a lifetime, or you might die. Who's first? The article reports more than 60 hoverboard fires in 20 states, resulting in more than $2 million in property damage, which led to the recall of more than 500,000 hoverboards from 10 different companies. Now, the rise of the hoverboard reminds us that newer is not always better. Sometimes the novel can be quite harmful. Hold that thought while I introduce you to this collection of lesser-known letters tucked away in the back of our New Testament called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. For the next two and a half months or so, we'll be studying these letters written by a man named John. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the apostle who walked with Jesus. We tend to know the Gospel much better than we know these letters, especially 2nd and 3rd John. Maybe you've never read 2nd and 3rd John. Maybe you've never heard a sermon from them. We'll get there eventually. These letters are important. There's a purpose statement here in 1 John. John tells us exactly why he wrote this letter, and it's very similar to his purpose statement in his gospel. In the gospel of John, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John tells us why he wrote. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's his gospel. Now, in the first letter he writes, he has a similar purpose statement. And it goes like this. In chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, John wrote his gospel so that people will believe in Jesus. He wrote this first letter so that those of us who are believers will know that we are believers. So that we will rest assured. See, amid all of the uncertainties in this life, all the unknowns and the unknowables, and there are many of them, can we be certain about our spiritual condition? Can we know that we are on the true path of eternal life? John's answer is yes. We can know. We can have assurance. In fact, throughout this letter, he will give us four tests. Tests that will determine, help us determine with absolute certainty our spiritual condition. You can think of these as the four main themes of 1 John. Here's what they look like. The first test is the authority of the apostles' teaching. Do we affirm the earliest teaching, the eyewitness accounts? Second, the identity of Jesus. What exactly do we believe about Jesus? Third, the reality of sin. How do we regard sin? Fourth and finally, the necessity of love. Do we display the deepest, or we could say the highest, form of love. Now think again about this first one, the authority of the apostles' teaching. Do we affirm the earliest teaching, not the latest, not the newest? Remember the hoverboard. 
Newer does not mean better. It's important to understand the historical context of these letters before we dive into the study. John is writing these letters in the final decade of the first century. This was a pivotal time in the history of the church because a key transition was happening. A transition from the apostles to the next generation of church leaders. Now imagine this day. Imagine living at the end of the first century. You know about Jesus, not because you met him personally, but because you know some of the people who did. You know some of the apostles. They are the ones who saw Jesus. They are the ones who heard Jesus' instruction from his own mouth. So if you have questions about Jesus, or if you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you know where to go. You go to the apostles. This was long before the publishing industry, long before podcasts. People didn't have easy access to theological sources, at least not written sources like we do today. So they went to the apostles. But slowly, the apostles began to disappear until there was only one left, John, the last living apostle. People began to wonder, what will happen when John is gone? He's not the strapping young lad he once was. Where will we turn when the last apostle is gone? And it was during this time that many counterfeit Christianities emerged. False ideas, new teachings. John, the last living apostle, being deeply concerned about this, having a pastor's heart, he writes this letter to clarify for them, for us, for good and all, what authentic, true Christianity looks like. How do we know the real thing amid all the counterfeit versions out there? How do we know the real thing? How do I know that I am on the true path of eternal life? The four tests. That's the place to start. We'll see some of these themes even in the very first passage of the letter. Let's jump right into it. In these opening paragraphs of 1 John, we'll see two major themes. The word of life and people of the light. The word of life and people of the light. Let's consider each of them. First, the word of life. Look at how John begins. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is very similar to how he starts his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. All things were made through him. John begins at the very beginning. He takes us back in time to the creation of all things. It's a time-traveling expedition. He puts us in the DeLorean, and we go all the way back to the very beginning, the creation of all things. And who or what do we see at the very beginning? This figure, this formative figure he refers to as the Word, the Word of life. The context of both John's letter and his gospel indicates that this is a reference to Jesus, the eternal God. There in the very beginning... Crafting, creating all things. Jesus is the designer, the artist. He was there in the very beginning. 
But it's not just that. John continues and he tells us more about this word, Jesus. In verse 2, he says, The life, shortening that reference from the word of life to the life, still referring to Jesus, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, very similar to John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, this is what is so unique about Christianity. Of all the world religions, Christianity is the one that claims not only is there a creator, Jesus, this creator God, in the very beginning, not just that, but this creator, this God, he entered into human history. The artist enters into his own art, as it were, to redeem this fallen world. Jesus, the eternal, uncreated God, he becomes flesh. He makes himself manifest, visible, physical. This is sometimes referred to as the doctrine of the incarnation. Big term, I assume you don't use it every day. So let me give you something to help you grab hold of it and understand it. Incarnation. My wife will tell you that I am not a big fan, this might surprise you, I'm not a big fan of soups and stews and chilies. And I'm going to tell you why. Partly it's because we live in Florida and it's hot, right? But here's the main reason. Every time I eat a soup or a stew or a chili, I, I, I kind of feel gypped. I feel like I'm ready for the meal now. So the only way I'll eat that soup or that stew or that chili is if I can look into the bowl and see some big chunks of steak or some giant shrimp. Like, I want to see the substance in the bowl. And then, okay, this is a meal. If I'm going to eat chili, it must be chili con carne. Go to the store and you buy chili con carne. What does that mean? Chili with meat. What is the incarnation? It's God with meat. God with meat. That's what this means. The eternal, uncreated God himself took on meat, took on flesh. The artist enters his own art to redeem this fallen world, which is what John proclaims next. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the uncreated eternal God, he becomes man, remaining what he was. He takes on flesh. He comes into creation. And John says, I saw him, and I want to tell you about it. See, this is why we should listen to John. He's the perfect person to listen to. Let's say you've saved up some money, and you're going to take a major vacation this year because you're long overdue for a vacation. A lot of us are. And you've decided that this year you're going to go to New Zealand. You're going to go to the South Island, the Otago region. Great. You know what? I could tell you about that. In fact, Jamie and I, of all the folks in this room, were probably the best ones to talk to simply because we lived there for three years. Our knowledge is not just conceptual. It's not that we read about it in a book and pictured it in our minds. No, no, we walked the ground. 
We hiked the Otago Peninsula several times, had tea in Larnock Castle, got to know the Kiwi people. We can tell you all about it. We're eyewitnesses. John is an eyewitness. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus' teaching. He touched the risen Lord. He even shared a meal with him. This is why we can trust him. This is why we should listen to him. John knows about Jesus and he wants to tell us exactly what Jesus can do. And so he tells us here in verse 3. He tells us all of this so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Why is it that this God-man came? He came to bring fellowship. He came to restore all that was broken in the very beginning of the biblical story. He came to do something about humanity's rebellion. See, Jesus' identity, it reveals his ministry. You'll never understand what Jesus came to do until you understand who Jesus is because his identity reveals his ministry. Who is he? He's the God-man. The eternal, uncreated one, we've seen that already, there in the very beginning. But he took on meat, incarnation, chili con carne, remember, he took on meat, he became flesh, he came to us, he's the God-man, and why did he come? To restore the broken relationship between God and man. In himself, we see what he came to do. He came to restore the fellowship that was broken. But not just the fellowship that was broken between us and God. Did you notice that surprisingly here, John doesn't refer to that first. He refers to that secondly, but he first says that you may have fellowship with us. So in some way, Jesus came to restore our relationships with each other. Jesus came to change the way we relate to each other. See, if you want to be a better employer or employee... If you want to be a better spouse or parent or child, what do you need? What do you need most? You need to believe and apply the gospel. Because according to John, Jesus will change all of your relationships. If you truly understand him, believe in him, and follow him, he will change all of your relationships. He brings fellowship with God, our creator, and he brings fellowship with each other. John, say more about that. I want to know how Jesus does this. How does he transform us and our relationships? John will say more. In fact, he'll say more in every chapter of the letter, including the very next paragraph, which brings us to our second point of the day. From the word of life to people of the light. Look at verse 5. Probably the central verse of the whole chapter here. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So the big idea of this second paragraph of the opening chapter is that people who live in fellowship with God because of Jesus, people who live in fellowship with God are recognizable. We are light dwellers. Why? Because God is light. To live in fellowship with the God who is light makes us light dwellers. A.W. Tozer, in his little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says this. He says, the most important thing about you, you ready for it? The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. 
The most important thing about you is your concept of God. It determines everything else about you in your life. And our concept of God must be consistent with God's self-revelation, which is the Bible. This is where God says to us, here's what I'm like. Here's how you can expect me to act toward you and toward all of my creation. So our concept of God it must be consistent with, with God's self-revelation. I'll give you an analogy to help you get the point. If you've been at Faith Church for any number of years, you've no doubt heard me use this analogy before. It's my favorite one. It's imperfect, but it's the best one I know of to help you get the idea here. If I go to my wife, Jamie, and I'm feeling very romantic, and I say to her, babe, I love your blue eyes. They are my favorite thing about you. I get lost in the depths of those blue eyes. And no matter how nice and romantic that might sound, if I say that, my wife will slap me because she has brown eyes. (laughs) It's not a compliment because it's not true. It's not her. It's not her. Friends, if the things you think and even love about God aren't true of Him, then you're not loving God. You see? You're not loving God. This is why we must have our Bibles open before us as we seek to answer this question, what is God like? And right here in 1 John 1, he tells us, John says, God is light. God is light. Now, what does that mean? Let's unpack that a bit. Unlike my analogy, and this is why I say it's an imperfect one, this statement is not primarily telling us something about how God appears. Now, it's true that in the Old Testament, in certain stories, God manifests his presence among his people and it shows up as light, thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai or a burning bush. But even in those Old Testament stories, the light represents something else. Light is a metaphor for God's holiness, his purity. His moral excellence. God is light and in him there is not even a trace of darkness or evil. And don't you see that that's why we can trust him. That's why we can trust him to lead us. To show us what is right and what is wrong. To show us the path that will lead to the flourishing of all of creation. It's because he is light And in him, there is not a trace of darkness. God is light. And therefore, people who live in fellowship with him will be characterized by light, which is what John says next. Verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with this God who is light, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The people of God will be recognizable. To live in fellowship with this God is to look different. How do I know if I am a believer? How do I know if I am on the path of eternal life? John says one of the things we can look for is light. The presence of light in our own life. Holiness, purity as God defines it. But let me be honest with you. I'm a little concerned as I read that about myself. Because I can tell you, 
There are times in my life where I walk toward the darkness. I can be impatient with my children. I can be just downright unkind to my wife. Man, if you heard the words that came out of my mouth sometimes, you probably wouldn't even want me as your pastor. That's the truth. There are definitely times in my life where I feel myself stepping toward the darkness. And John says, how do you know you're a believer? You live in the light. So what do I do with that? Am I a child of God? Am I a genuine believer or am I deceiving myself? What about you? We have to keep reading. The next two verses here, 8 and 10. He goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what the heck, John? Now I'm just really confused here. Because you just told me in these previous verses that walking in the light is evidence of being in fellowship with the God who is light. Therefore, I need to be walking in the light. But then in verses 8 and 10, you tell me, I'm going to have sin in my life. And in fact, if I say I haven't sinned, I am in fact walking in the darkness. I'm deceiving myself. So how does all this fit together? There's a tension here. You sense it, right? And John doesn't really resolve it for us. He just leaves it. He wants us to think about it. Figure out how all of this fits together. I think he's trying to show us that life in the light... It involves both holiness and honesty. Honesty about our failures. It involves both purity and openness about our mistakes. We're not perfect. Far from it. I'm not perfect. Far from it. And that's why we need verse 9, where we'll close for the morning. Look at this one. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Life in the light. What, is it, what does it mean to be a light dweller, to live in fellowship with this God who is light? It means on the one hand that yes, we are pursuing holiness with all we've got. On the other hand, it means that sin remains. We're not going to live perfectly. See, to be a Christian, friends, you got to get this. To be a Christian, it doesn't mean that we are sinless. It means we know what to do with our sin. Confess it. To be a Christian, it doesn't mean that we have no need for forgiveness. It means we know where to find it. Jesus, the word of life, the eternal God who became man, who laid down his life and was raised from the dead for us. You know what's interesting about verse 9? John doesn't put any limits on our sin, does he? He doesn't talk about the quantity of our sin. He doesn't talk about how long ago or how recently it occurred. He simply says, confess it. 
if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. It doesn't matter how dirty you feel, Jesus can cleanse you. He can cleanse you. We all have sin in our life. I'm going to leave you with this thought. It's important. You want to know what the most dangerous sin in your life is right now? Come close, I'll tell you. The most dangerous sin in your life at this very moment is the one you are most defensive about. The most dangerous sin in your life at this moment is the one you are most defensive about. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to cover it up and hide it. Confess it. Confess it. Because when you do, you will find that God is faithful and just. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. No matter how dirty you might feel. Let's pray. God, thank you for this good news in your word about who you are, the God of light, about the Son of God, the Word of life who came, entered into this creation to redeem it, to redeem us. God, even those of us who are your people, we still struggle with sin each and every day. I'm thankful that this passage from your word, it teaches us what to do with our sin. And so we're going to do that right now. God, we confess to you our failures. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We certainly have not loved our neighbors the way you teach us to love. God, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and action. By the things we have done and even the things we have left undone. As your people, light dwellers, we desire to be useful to you, God. We want to serve you and we understand that sin hinders our service. So we confess our sin to you this morning. We ask you to forgive us. Give us the strength to turn away from our sin. To leave it behind for good and all. for the good news of the gospel. The good news that sinners, rebels like us, we can be forgiven. All because of Jesus. All because of him. 